Happy Sabbath. That's more people here. Happy Sabbath, everyone. I'm excited about what God can do for us this evening. He wants to do great things. I tell you the truth, God wants to do special things for each one of us. He wants to do something supernatural and create within us something that we do not have ourselves. And I realize that I'm, I'm not smart enough to tell you anything. Neither am I intelligent enough or eloquent enough to communicate the realities of what God wants to talk to us about. A couple of years ago, I was staying at a church parsonage and I was doing some literary evangelism, but I was staying in that house by myself and it was early in the morning. And normally I would get out early and start knocking on doors and meeting people, but for some reason, I couldn't get myself together. And as I was there in the house, there was a knock at the front door. And as that knock came to the front door, I, I saw the person. It looked like an older lady. I thought she was there for my roommates that lived upstairs. So I said, you know, ma'am, I said to the door, ma'am, you need to go to the back of the house. So when I went to the back of the house, she came to the back, and she said, Pastor Waller. And at that time, I was not a pastor, nothing close to being a pastor. She said, Pastor Waller. And as she said, Pastor Waller, she physically could not stand anymore. There were tears in her eyes, and she said, my son, my son. And she began to fall to the ground, and I caught her. She said, Pastor, my son. I said, ma'am, I said, I don't know who your son is, but tell, tell me his name. She told me his name. I said, I don't think I've ever heard of him or seen him before. I said, where does he sit in church? Well, she says he sits on the right-hand side in the back, on the right-hand side. She said, my son this morning came home early from school. His clothes are all bloodied. He seems like he's been initiated into a gang. I said, can I meet your son? Can you, can you bring him here? Will he talk to me? She said, yes. So she went home. She got her son. She brought her son back to me. And I remember the day, was a, it was a cloudy day. I'm sitting in my Dodge Intrepid, and I have the young man sitting on the passenger side. He has his hood turned up in the car. And I'm talking to him. You know, this is a seven-day Adventist young man. You know that, right? I'm talking to him, and everything that I said just went into a dark place. He wasn't responding. At the same time, I was doing the evangelistic meeting. I said, why don't you come to me with the meetings? To the meet come to the meetings. Maybe you'll, you'll accept the message there, man. Come, come to the meetings, man. Come to the meetings. He said, all right, I'll come. He came, sat in the front row with his hood on. Nothing moved him. Nothing. Nothing moved him. After the meetings were done, my wife and I were sitting in the car. Now, my wife, when you see her, you won't believe this, but she used to be a gang member. Number two seat in Chicago. You wouldn't believe it. She's so sweet and nice now. But the young man, as we sat in the car, she asked him a couple of questions. Questions I don't know anything about because I was born and raised on an Adventist pew. You understand what I'm saying? She asked him, 
I see that you have a flag. Have you ever killed anybody? He said, yes. A 17-year-old, seven-day Adventist young man said, yes, he had killed somebody. He had come and sat in meetings like this. He had heard preaching just like this. But for some reason, it never resonated in his heart. He never gave himself to Jesus. And it was a sad commentary for a 17-year-old man to say, yes, I've killed somebody. See, friends, I, I know that I'm not smart enough to communicate to you tonight. There's too many people here. I don't know you. I don't know many of your faces. But I know Jesus wants to come down close to you. I know he wants to save you. I know he wants to bring unity amongst the brethren, but there's something special that he must do. He must break us down before he builds us up. He must break us down. So before we begin to study this, because we're going to study. I'm not going to preach. We're going to study. We're going to break the word open. You're going to make sure you don't believe anything I say. You're going to write everything down. And we're going to watch the Spirit of God do something special in someone's heart this evening. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, Father, I want to thank you for being so merciful and kind to us. You've brought us to another holy Sabbath, another opportunity, Lord, to worship, to hear your words, to have these words inscribed into our hearts, Father. Please now, Lord, as we open the word, Give us wisdom beyond our years. Give us thoughts and feelings that reflect your own. Please, Lord, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. So tonight's subject matter is the ripple effect. It's part of a series that we do... And it's also a, a, a class that I teach at the school. But I can't teach a whole class in four days. Is that all right? I'm going to try my best to simplify the subject matter. And as we study, I want you to pay attention to the unique parallels that are found in the Bible. The glorious holy mountain. Open your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse number 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9. And when you have it, just say amen. All right, I'll wait a few moments. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 9, and I'm going to sing it to you, not because I can sing. That is not the point of me singing. The point of me singing it to you so you can learn it, you can take it home, you can have it seared into your mind. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 9 says, the thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. Everybody got it? All right, let's sing it together. Ready? The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done, 
is that which shall be done and there is no new thing under the sun the thing that hath been it is that which shall be very good now i'm gonna ask you a couple of questions i want you to answer me back is that all right so the thing that hath been hath been is that past present or future Past, the thing that has been, the thing that shall be, shall be, is that past, present, or future. The thing that is done, is that past, present, or future. Present. So what we're learning, what we're seeing from this text, very simple idea, very simple concept. The thing that I've been is that which shall be done. So that which has already happened in the past tells us what's going to happen in the future. And that which is done is that which has already been done, and there is how many new things under the sun? No new thing under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15. Here the Bible says, that which hath been is what? Now. And that which is to be have already been and God requires what? Let me ask you a question. I hear another simple question. I'm just thinking with you this evening. If we want to know what we're supposed to do in the future, if we want to know what God requires for us in the future, based on this verse, what are we supposed to study? The past. Very, very brilliant. You guys are already on top of the game. You're learning the very simple principle that is being laid out here. But I want you to go a tad bit further. I want you to go now with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation, the first chapter. Revelation, the first chapter. And we're going to begin reading at verse number 8. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. Please notice again what the Bible says. The Bible says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is. Now, what is which is? Past, present, or future? Present. And which was? Which was its past, present, or future? Past. And which is to come? What is that? Past, present, or future? The Almighty. So, pay attention now. It seems to me that if I'm studying the past, I'm not simply studying history for history's sake. When I study the past, I'm really looking at the hand of God to see how God has orchestrated things in the past. And when I'm looking at the present, I'm not just looking at the present, I'm really looking at how God intercedes in the behalf of mankind right now here in the present. And when I'm studying prophecy, I'm not just looking at end-time events for the sake of looking at end-time events. I'm really looking at the hand of God in end-time events so I can understand what He requires of me today. Does that make sense, everybody? So when I'm studying, I'm not just studying for information's sake. I really want to know why, God. I really want to understand God. You see, when I was back in school and I went to academy similar to this academy, I didn't understand God. So because I didn't understand Him, I really didn't want anything to do with Him. I really didn't know why He made me go to church every Saturday. I mean, I know it says in the Bible, but hey, everybody goes to church on Sunday. What's the big deal? I didn't understand why they made a big deal about going to the movies. Why they make it a big deal about going to the movies? Everybody watches movies. In fact, Adventists of all people know they bring the same movies back to their house. Right? 
So I didn't understand why is everybody making a big deal about everything until I began to search and seek God for, my, for myself. And what we're going to do, we're going to see the hand of God. In our study, we're going to see how God has orchestrated events and how God is bringing everything in these last few moments of earth's history to a head. Now, I want to lay out another principle before we go any further because tonight is foundational. You don't want to miss the next talk that I do or the next talk after that or the next one after that. This talk is foundational for everything that we're going to cover. Please notice what is said on the screen. I know you can't see it there, so I'll read it to you here. Education page 190 in the second paragraph says, the Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a what, my friends? As a whole. And to see the relation of its parts. He should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme, of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. He should see how this controversy enters into how many phases? Every phase of human experience. How in every act of life, he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives. And how whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. Have you ever wanted to call a timeout? Like, God, you wait right here, and, and Lucifer, you wait right here. I need a break from both of you. Have you ever felt like that? But I want you to know something. There's no such thing. Every decision you make, even right now, as you listen under the sound of my voice, every choice that you make is a decision for or against God. There is no timeout. There is no middle ground. There is no, I'll get back to you later, God. There's nothing like that. Every choice we make is saying what side we're on, even the clothes we wear. It just says what side we're on. That's, that's all it says. There's no timeout. But I want to go back and highlight this principle because there's a principle that I want us to take with us. We've already covered that which has been as that which shall be. We've already covered that. But I want us to learn to view the Word as a as a whole. The story of Samson is directly connected with Revelation chapter 13. The story of Noah and the ark is directly connected with Revelation 17. Everything in the Bible is connected one with the other. If we can understand that, then we're almost ready to begin our study this evening. Are you ready to study? We're going to study. I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible. The only problem is I don't see enough notebook paper. Need to make sure you take notes. You're not going to gain the wealth of what you can gain simply by looking at me or listening to me. But let's go a little further. I'm going to introduce to you now an acronym. This acronym will help you remember what I'm going to seek to say to you that's going to contain so much information. The acronym is very easy. The acronym is TEMPLE. TEMPLE. The T represents the presence. The E represents execution of judgment. The M is major executioners. The P is presence departs. 
The L is last remedy, and the E is expected gathering. Again, this is going to be a quiz tomorrow. Make sure you get this. The T is the presence. The E is execution of judgment. The M is major or main executioner. The P is presence depart. The L is last remedy. And the E is expected gathering. Now, when this study came to me, I was actually preparing to teach the book of Daniel. I was preparing to teach Daniel Revelation class, and as I was preparing, I wanted to do a verse-by-verse study, and I got stuck on the first two verses. So go with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 1. Daniel chapter 1, and beginning at verse number 1. Please notice what the Bible says. And as we're studying, please understand, that which hath been is that which shall be. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of… King of what, my friends? Babylon unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with the part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. So here is where my mind becomes perplexed. Here's the question. Why does the Bible verse say that God gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, question, Babylon, is that a pagan kingdom or is that the remnant church? Pagan. And now Judah, Judah, is that God's chosen people or is that the pagan people? Think with me, because that which hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is nothing new under the sun. So now I'm investigating, I'm looking at it, and I'm saying, okay, well, God, why is it that you allowed a pagan king to take your chosen people and put your chosen people under that pagan king? In fact, notice why this is such a perplexing question. I want you to go with me to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And we're going to begin reading at verse number one. Remember, the T represents the presence. The T represents the presence. Second Chronicles chapter 5, beginning at verse number one. Please notice here what the Bible says. The Bible says, Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasure house of God. So according to this verse, the temple is finished, and Solomon is putting everything in its proper place. Is that right? Look at verse 13. Verse 13, same chapter. And we're studying this evening. Notice what the Bible says. It says, it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as, were as what, my friends? Were as one 
to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. Pay attention. So that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. So here's my question. Based on the verse, what preceded God's presence entering into the house? Based on the verse. They were one. They were united. They made one sound, one voice, one instrumental music. They were as one man. And as they were as one, God said, you know what? They finished the house. The house is prepared. I'm going to move in. Listen to me. The house was not their house. Whose house was it? God's house. Their house was finished. The people were as one. God says, great. I'm so happy my people reflect the realities of what the Godhead is like. I'm going to move in. So God moves into his house. Notice what else the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning at verse number 1. Notice what the Bible says. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, the Bible says, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Verse 2, And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Wait a second. Listen, what I'm telling you right now, you may not even understand why I'm telling you what I'm telling you, but this is so deep. And in fact, once I share with you why I'm telling you this, I'm going to show you two other examples from history, biblical history, and then show you how it applies to end time. And I'm going to show you the principle of what we're going to do over the next four days. Now watch carefully. What happens to the priest when God's presence fills the house? What happens to the priest? What is he not able to do? He's not able to enter. Question now, what is the responsibility of a priest? What does he do? What does he do? He intercedes. According to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, the priest intercedes. He gives gifts and offers sacrifices in the behalf of the people. But when the house is filled, when the church is one, and God's presence enters into that building, there is no more need for a priest. Wait a second. I want to know if I made this up. Is there anywhere else in the Bible that fits this same principal idea? Go with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, and we're going to begin reading at verse 32. Exodus chapter 40, and beginning at verse 32. Please pay close attention to the principle, my friends. Exodus chapter 40, and beginning at verse 32, the Bible says... When they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he reared up the cord round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the cord. Pay attention. So Moses finished the work. What work did Moses finish, my friends? What was he, what was he finishing? He was finished building the sanctuary. The same work that was done with Solomon's temple. Does everybody follow? When the sanctuary was finished being built, the work is done. Notice what happens in verse 34. 
Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you see it, my friends? We see it with Moses' tent. We see it in Solomon's temple. I wonder, does it have any end-time application at all? Go with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 15. Notice here what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 15. And we're going to begin reading at verse number 5. Again, the principle, the thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. There is absolutely no new thing under the sun. And so when we're looking at Israel, I want you to know we're not just looking at Israel, we're looking at us. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 5, beginning at verse number 5. Revelation 15, beginning at verse number 5. It says, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony was open in heaven. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vows, full of the wrath of God, which liveth forever and ever. Watch this. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the what, my friends? Till the seven plagues of the seven angels was fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? Did you see in Moses' temple or tabernacle that when the glory of God came in, Moses could not enter? You saw in Solomon's temple that when the glory of God came in, the priest could not enter? And now you see in Revelation chapter 15 that when God's presence enters into that tabernacle, the seven last plagues are now poured out and no man is able to enter? Now, my friends, I want you to know something. If we don't figure out why God's presence in Daniel chapter 1 and 1 and 2, why God gave Jehoiakim into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, because that would have never happened if God's presence was in that temple. Nebuchadnezzar would have never taken God's people captive if God's presence was residing in that temple. But some way, somehow, they chased God from his own house. Some way, somehow, they chased God from his own house. Now, we're going to look at a couple of uh, uh, reasons why God said, why he himself said, that he was going to depart from that temple. This is Solomon's temple. Please notice, God's presence comes down. I'm going to pass this one. I want to go right here. The execution of judgment. Remember the temple acronym, T-E-M-P-L-E. I want us to go to Deuteronomy. We're going to look at the reasons why God's presence left the temple. Again, if we don't understand this, there's a crisis that's coming on its way that's going to sweep the majority of us that claim to be God's people out of this church. Did you hear what I said? There's trouble on its way. And if we don't understand how to stay vitally connected with God, I care not what our profession is. We will be swept away from God's chosen people. Deuteronomy 28, look at verse number 15. This chapter is the chapter of blessings and cursings. Verse 15 says, But it shall come to pass... If thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee 
and overtake thee. And then it lists a bunch of them. But I want us to look specifically at verse 49. Verse 49 says, The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favor to the young, and he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land, until thou be destroyed, which also shall not leave thee either corn, wine, or oil, or the increase of thine kind, or flocks of thy sheep, until he have destroyed thee. Watch 52. Look at 52. And he shall besiege thee and all thy gates until thy high and fixed walls come down wherein thou trustest throughout all thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. I find that verse curious. You know why? This is the book of Deuteronomy. It says that there's a kingdom that's going to come from a far country that's going to move swift as an eagle. Now question. What Bible imagery in the book of Daniel, what creature moves as swift as an eagle? What creature? Babylon. The lion with what kind of wings? Eagle's wings. So it seems to me that there's a violation of the covenant relationship with God. So God prophesies thousands of years before it happens and says, look, because of the violation of the covenant, there's going to be a power that comes from a far country. It's going to move as swift as an eagle, and your children's lives will be sacrificed as a result of you breaking this covenant. But let's look a little further, because I really need us to understand why God allowed this to happen. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25. Please notice here what the Bible says. Jeremiah 25, beginning at verse number 3. Jeremiah 25, beginning at verse 3, notice what the Bible says. It says, from the 13th year of Josiah, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even unto this day, that is the three and twentieth year, the word of the Lord hath come unto me, and I have spoken unto you, rising early and speaking, but ye have not what, my friends? Ye have not hearkened. And the Lord hath sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, turn ye again, now every one of from his evil way and from the evil of your doings. Dwell in the land that the Lord hath given you and to your fathers forever. And go not after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And provoke me not to anger with the works of your hands, and I will do you no hurt. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands." So talk to me a little bit because I know it's Sabbath evening and it's time to do some lay activities, right? I need you to talk to me. Based on the verses that we read here, why does God say that his wrath is going to come upon them? Because they have not what? Okay, so number one, they have not hearkened. I'm not even spelling that right, but you understand. Hearken to prophets. They haven't hearkened to prophets. They don't believe in the prophet. I'm not talking about today. But remember, the thing that happened is that which what? Shall be. So they don't want to listen to the prophets. They want to do their own thing. Pay attention now. Notice what else the verse says. It says, 
Verse 4, and the Lord has sent unto you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, turn ye again now, everyone from his evil way, from your evil doings, dwell in the land. Look at verse 6. Go not after what, my friends? Pay attention. So now they're saying, you're not listening to the prophets. Go not after other gods. Lowercase g, right? And then he's telling them, don't worship the things of your own hands, the works of your own creation. All right? Do not worship works of own creation. Now, again, God is speaking to his Israel, to, to his people, and he says, I told you early, before time, not right when judgment was coming, but I've told you hundreds of years before it even happened. Now, pay attention, because I think God is reasonable. I really do. As I've gotten to know him and I've spent time in the Bible, I've seen how he's dealt with me in, in my life, I've seen God be reasonable. There's a cause and effect. He's not random. Some people think he's random. He's not random. He's very predictable, God is. He's intentional in what he does. He wants his church to come together. He wants his people to be united. But they must pay attention to the instructions that he gives. Watch carefully because that which hath been is that which shall be. Notice what the Bible says now in verse number 7. Yet ye have not hearkened unto me, saith the Lord, that ye might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own what, my friends? To your own hurt. So what you're doing is actually going to hurt you. It's not me hurting you. You're hurting yourself. But wait, there's more. Watch this. Look at verse 8. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because ye have not heard my words, behold, I will sin and take all the families of the north. Pay attention, saith the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, and against the inhabitants thereof, and against all these nations round about, and will utterly destroy them, and make them an astonishment, and a hissing, and perpetual desolations. Again, I am completely shocked as I read the verse. Now, I want you to guess, why do you think I'm shocked when I read this verse? That's right. Exactly right. Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. What in the world? What in the world? How is God calling Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, his servant, but when he's talking to his own chosen people, they're not listening? Does that make any sense? Nebuchadnezzar, my servant? Fascinating. And notice what direction he comes from. Where does he come from, my friends? From the north. Right now, believe it or not, you're studying end-time prophecy, and you have no clue what you're studying right now. This is a blueprint, a pattern by which God is working. There is a curse that's coming upon God's people. God's people are not paying attention to God and how he's trying to correct them. So God says, since you won't listen to the prophets, I'm going to send somebody from a northern kingdom, and you're going to be oppressed because you have not hearkened to my instruction. Let's go a little further because tonight's topic is called the ripple effect. I want you to go to 2 Kings chapter 24. And again, we're asking the question, why is it that God has allowed a pagan king to suppress the people of God? So far, we've highlighted just a few points that have not hearkened to the prophets. 
they go after other gods. They worship the works of their own hands. Even if the prophets come early, they don't want to hear anything a prophet says. This is not a new problem in the church today. This is an old problem. It's an old problem. We're in 2 Kings now. 2 Kings chapter 24. And because we don't have a lot of time to read too many verses, because I know my 10 minutes is going to come faster than I can imagine. 2 Kings chapter 24, we're going to begin reading at verse number 1. Notice here what the Bible says. It says, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees and bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites and bands of the children of Ammon, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did. Well, that's a new name, the sins of Manasseh. So God is punishing Israel for the sins of Manasseh. So now I need to figure out who Manasseh is, right? I need to understand who Manasseh is because, first of all, we've already highlighted that they had these issues, but now God is punishing Israel because of the sins of Manasseh. So let's go to Manasseh. Let's look at Manasseh. 2 Kings chapter 21. Pay attention because this is the seventh-day Adventist Manasseh is. Pay attention. Watch carefully. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. You know, there's a reason why they put the mom's names after the boys. No comment. Let's go. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, at the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. Well, that's interesting. Who's Manasseh's father? Hezekiah. Remember, we're talking about a ripple effect. So Hezekiah's father was a reformer. All right? Pay attention. So he built up what his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars for Baal. And made a grove as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his sons pass through the fire and observe times and use enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set up a graven image of the grove that he made in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Now I want you to imagine God's heart. Here, Solomon had built him a house, the most beautiful structure ever. God moves into the house. And you know what the people do? God, we don't like you anymore. So what we're going to do, we're going to add a God. We're going to add children's sacrifice. We're going to worship familiar spirits. Imagine now, I want you to think with me for a moment. If I lock every door, nobody can get out. Through the ventilation, I start sending in rats and roaches and snakes. How many of you want to stay? Please raise your hand. Nobody wants to? You want to stay? We got to pray, sister, all right? 
Most people want to want to stay with rats and roaches and mice and snakes. It's not a normal thing. If I start letting in all the abominations, would you want to stay? The answer is no. You would want to leave. Imagine now I'm married to my wife. Don't have to imagine that. I am married to my wife. <laughs> I'm married to my wife, and we have a sanctuary. Listen to me now. We have a special sanctuary. We have a place where we live. We have our bedroom and our kitchen and our, and our living room, and I bring in another woman. And I bring that woman in, and she moves my wife's furniture out and puts her furniture in. How do you think my wife would feel? Pretty upset, right? She moves my wife's pots and pans out of the kitchen, and she puts her pots and pans in the kitchen. How do you think she'll feel? She wouldn't be happy about that at all. What about this? She goes into the bedroom, removes my wife's clothes out of the closet, and puts her clothes there. I think there will be a rumble in the Bronx. What do you think? I think there will be a mayhem in the home if such behavior were to take place. Please understand, when Manasseh brings in a pagan altar and puts it where God's altar is supposed to be, when he brings in false sacrifice, where God's sacrifice is supposed to be, when he begins to pray to the host and stars of the sky, when the people are supposed to pray to the God of heaven, imagine the heart of God. I think God would be a little hurt. What do you think? But he's not hurt for himself. Please understand this point. God would be hurt not because you offended him per se, but since he's the only source of true happiness, since he's the only source of true peace, since he's the only source of true unity, and you're bringing in something else that's supposed to bring that unity, that's supposed to be that love, when you bring that in, it makes him upset because he's jealous over you. He knows you're not going to be happy. He knows you're going to run around in circles and circles and circles. He knows that you're going to be frustrated. And he says, why are you going to do this to yourself? Why not just put me where I'm supposed to be and you could be happy like you're supposed to be? So when Manasseh does this, a Seventh-day Adventist young man, when he does this, because he was a Sabbath keeper, he did know about the sanctuary and there were prophets in his day. A seven-day Adventist young man, when he refutes every principle of what he knows to be truth and brings in this abomination, please understand the sins of Manasseh, though Manasseh repented. Do you know Manasseh changed? Do you know Manasseh gave his heart to the Lord? Do you know Manasseh, even though he sacrificed the children and did all that stuff, he was taken into Babylon, Manasseh gave his heart back to God, God forgave him, but the sins of Manasseh still caused the people of Israel to go into captivity to the king of Babylon. Listen to me carefully. Listen to me carefully, my friends. There are decisions that I made before I gave my heart fully to Christ that still have a ripple effect. I mean, you may have gotten out. You may have gone to the club and you had a good time and then you gave your heart to Jesus and everything is okay. But those friends that you led to the club, they're still going to the club, aren't they? Huh? Oh, I gave my heart to Jesus. I don't sleep around anymore. But all those people that you slept with still have to deal with those things that you did. Still have to deal with those issues. 
There's a ripple effect to our decisions. They don't just end because we gave everything to Jesus. We need to be more focused and sincere and repentant towards God. Say, Father, I should have never done it. And when I know that I've done it and it's affected other people, I should be praying for those people until I see a change, my friends. It's not just I gave my heart to Jesus and I'm all good now. No, I gave my heart to Jesus. Father, please save my sister. Please save my brother. I led them into the worldly music. I did it, Father. Please help me bring them back to what is true and what is honest and what is righteous and what is holy. There's a ripple effect, my friends. He gives his heart to Jesus. He gets back with God, but the effects of his sin still went on. Well, let's take it a little further. Let's take it a little deeper. His father was Hezekiah. Everybody know who Hezekiah is? I love the story of Hezekiah. Fascinating. If you go through it, you'll, you'll see in the story of Hezekiah, in the person of Hezekiah, a fascinating end-time events applications you can find all throughout this story. But with Hezekiah, I want to focus on three things. Hezekiah was a mighty, mighty, mighty reformer. He broke down the idols. Hezekiah, he's the only man that I know, you tell me if you know another, that prayed And as he prayed, an angel came down from heaven and killed 185,000 enemy soldiers. He's the only one I know that did that. Do your prayers. I don't want you praying for somebody to die. Amen? (laughs) But do your prayers move God's hand like that? Hezekiah prayed, 185,000 soldiers dead. And he's the only one I know that prayed and said, Father... I'm sick and I don't want to die. Isaiah says, do you want the son to go forward or backwards? What did he ask for? Backwards? Pay attention now. Well, this gets fascinating. So Hezekiah prays, and he's the only one I know in Scripture that prays, and the son goes backwards 10 degrees. You mean God's that interested in that one man that he will stop nature's natural course to hear this man's prayer? Do you think God's that interested? I want you to know something. Whether you believe it or not, he's that interested. He's that interested. I know he's interested in me. I I know it. There's no, no question in my mind. He's that interested. The Bible says that he counts. He knows the very number of the hairs on your head. That does not just counting. You know, counting is one, two, three. No, your hair follicle, that one right there, has a number on it. He knows it's number eight. That's how detailed he is about the intimacy that he has for his dear children. He's that interested. Hezekiah, the sun goes back 10 degrees. Now pay attention now. Hezekiah prays, the sun goes back, and there are some people in another land, in the land of Babylon, that are outside at their normally prayer time where they're worshiping the god Marduk. And as they're worshiping the god Marduk, the god Marduk goes backwards. And they're a little concerned. They're like, what, what's happening? They go and they talk to all the scribes and, and all their leaders, and they're saying, what's happened? Our God went backwards. This must be a deathly omen. The world is about to be destroyed. But then word comes to them that a man named Hezekiah prayed to a God in heaven, and that God in heaven controlled their God and made their God go backwards. That's what happened. So the king of Babylon sends men a thousand miles 
from Babylon, if they took the Fertile Crescent and took 999 miles, they took a thousand mile journey to figure out who this God is that made their God go backwards. And they get there. I want us to notice what the Bible says in regards to this story. The Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 20, and beginning at verse number 8. Notice what the Bible says. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I will go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shall thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or back ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backwards ten degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backwards by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. At that time, Berodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. He heard about it. Pay attention. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold, the spices and the precious ointment, and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Hold your hand right here. Go to Second Chronicles for a moment. Same story. Second Chronicles. Chapter 32. 2nd Chronicles chapter 32. 2nd Chronicles chapter 32 and beginning at verse number 27. The Bible says, And Hezekiah had exceeding much riches and honor, and he made himself treasures for silver and for gold and for precious stones and for spices and for shields and for all manner of pleasant jewels. Storehouses also for the increase of corn and wine and oil and stalls for all manner of beasts and coats for flocks. Moreover, he provided him cities and possession of flocks, herds in abundance, for God had given him substance very much. Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him that he might know all that was what? I don't like that verse. The Bible says God left him to try him. The people of Babylon come to the king of Israel, the king of Israel that has done all these reforms, the king of Israel that had prayed and the angel came down from heaven and killed all these soldiers, a king of Israel that had the sun go backwards 10 degrees, and the king of Israel that had gotten great wealth because he followed God's leadership, and the king of Israel, listen carefully, becomes confident in the blessings of God instead of the God of the blessings. Listen to me. Where you live in this area, I was born out here. This is a blessed area. Great light has been given to God's people. Great light in regards to health. Great light in regards to education. Is it possible that we have become comfortable and are now worshiping what God has blessed us with 
instead of worshiping the God of the one who gave it to us? I want you to think about it. I just want you to think, if God of heaven said right now, pack up everything you have, put everything in the car, leave your house behind, I want you to go to China and do some work. Wait a second, I mean, I got a big job. I, I mean, hold on, my kids are in school still. Huh? I got to get my education. I've been working on this all this time. God, you're telling me to leave? It's possible. And if you're a true follower of God, you're a true follower of God, it's not the blessings that you're going to worship. You're not going to stay behind because you got the money. You're not going to stay here because you got to get a longer education. You're going to leave because the God of heaven has said, go. Is that right? But wait, there's more. Listen, we're about to go real heavy right now. Watch this. I was reading Prophets and Kings, page 344, second paragraph. Pay close attention. The visit of these messengers from the ruler of a faraway land. Pause, pause. Faraway land. Do you remember that we read in Deuteronomy 28, verse 49 to 52, that God would send punishers from a faraway land? Use the exact same language. So these visitors from a faraway land, watch this, these messengers from the ruler of a faraway land gave Hezekiah an opportunity to extol the living God. What does extol mean? That means to lift up, to exalt, to praise. Gave an opportunity to extol the living God. How easy it would have been for him to tell them of God, the upholder of all created things, through whose favor his own life had been spared, when all of the hope had fled, what momentous transformations might have been. Wow. When I first read that, my brain said, what? What momentous transformations might have been? What do you mean momentous transformations might have been? Tell me something. You're all Bible scholars. You've been paying attention. Where do these men come from? What country do they come from? Babylon. You got to think with me right now. The year is anywhere between 715 B.C. and 698 B.C. This is the only time frame from 715 B.C. to 698 B.C. that Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet are simultaneously living at the same time. Hezekiah the king dies by 698, some say 700. So Isaiah the prophet and Hezekiah, whatever's happening, happens between 715 and 700. Now why is this significant? Tell me something. All of you who have been to Bible prophecy seminars, what year does Babylon come and take Israel captive? What year? Hold on. Where am I? Brother Peter, am I in Melinda? Is this a Seventh-day Adventist group? Okay, I'm going to ask one more time because I'm a little confused about what's happening right now. What year does Babylon come and take Israel captive? What year? All right, some people say 606, some people say 605, either one is fine with me. So mind you, listen, 715 to 700 is when Isaiah and Hezekiah are talking. It's 100 years before they go into Babylonian captivity. And the men are from Babylon. Y'all not listening to me. Listen, it says, what momentous transformations might have taken place had these, had these what? What are they called on the screen? What are they called? 
Seekers after truth. What do you mean? You're, talking, you're telling me that the Babylonians were seekers after truth? The ones that were worshiping the sun god were seekers after truth? But instead of teaching them, the seekers after truth, about the living God, we want to get cool with them and tell them how big our hospital is. We want to tell them how much money we have in reserves. We want to tell them how big our educational system is. Not understanding that these very ones that we're telling this information to will subjugate God's people in persecution. Listen to me. The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. I'm only laying one layer of it right now. I have three more layers. I will lay them so heavy on you, my friends, you're going to have to go home and talk to Jesus about this. What momentous transformation it might have been if these seekers after truth from the plains of Chaldea been led to acknowledge the supreme sovereignty of the living God. And please understand, I am not talking about our institutions alone. Understand, I'm talking about us. What does the Bible say? Know ye not that ye are temples of God? Aren't you a temple? Isn't the Holy Spirit supposed to abide inside of us? Right. So what right do I have to brag about how big my bank account is or how fancy my church is or how wonderful my family is? I have nothing to brag about. The only one I have to brag about is the man Jesus because he has died for my sins. And as I brag about him, as he's lifted up, all the world will be united to Jesus. Is that right? We get too high on ourselves, my friends. And this is the history of Israel. This is the history of how, how the church has gone in the past, how it's repeated history over and over again. We're too high on ourselves. In fact, without deviating too much, I want you to see something in the very beginning of time. Let's go to Ezekiel, the 28th chapter. Ezekiel, the 28th chapter. Beginning at verse number 12, please notice what the Bible says. Ezekiel, the 28th chapter, beginning at verse... Number 12, please notice here what the Bible says. The Bible says in verse 12, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sittest up the psalm full of, what is he full of, my friends? Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and the gold, the workmanship of thy taverns and of thy pipes was prepared in thee the day that thou was created. Who gave him all this, my friend? Who gave Lucifer all this? So innately, in those gems and in those pearls and in those diamonds, there's nothing wrong with the actual gemstones. But there's a problem that comes up later. Look at verse number 16. By the multitude of thy, what does it say? What is the merchandise? What is the merchandise? It's those gemstones. That's the merchandise. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with what, my friends? Violence. And thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God and will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Think with me for a moment. Think with me. I just want you to think. 
based on the verses, what was Lucifer's downfall? He began to worship the creature instead of the creator. He began to worship the blessings of God over the, the God of the blessings. Because that's all he's doing. Who gave it to him? God gave it to him. God gave him his wisdom. God gave him his beauty. God gave him all those things. And instead of worshiping God, he worships himself. I wonder if there are any self-worshippers in the room tonight. I know I've been. It's easy to worship ourselves. Oh, he's such a great preacher. Yep, right to the head. Self-worship. Sing so nice. Yep. Right to the head. Good grades in school? Right to the head. It's easy to worship ourselves. How long do we stand in the mirror? (laughs) Self-worship. It is our worst enemy, my friends. The papacy is not our worst enemy. Church organization, not our worst enemy. The worst enemy that you could ever face is the battle against yourself. And I don't care where you hide. Somebody says, oh, the church is is corrupt. Wherever you go, you're still corrupt. You still got problems. You still got issues. The only way that that issue or that problem can be resolved, just like Israel of old, the only way Israel could have received a remedy for their problem was to go to the creator God. If you don't go to Creator God, you will always have your problems. You will always have your issues. You will walk around with them for the rest of your life. You can blame your mama if you want to. You can blame your daddy if you want to. But if you don't get on your knees to Jesus, you will never receive the remedy that you need. I'm just being real. I'm just being real. told this story last week at our camp meeting, but I'll tell you. A few years ago, before ministry, my sister was, um, we were having a disagreement. She was disrespecting my mother, and nobody disrespects my mom, sister or anybody. Big brother's coming in, like, look, you need to stop talking to mom like that right now. Right now. Do you understand what I'm saying? She's not listening to me. So I grabbed her up, fold her up a little bit, I put her in the closet. But I knew when I did it that it was wrong. You understand? Because God never works by force. Never. He never himself, in order to get you to obey him, works by force. He doesn't do that. He uses strong encouragement. But I knew it was wrong. And I was upset at myself, and I went down to the basement, and I went in the basement, and I, I sat in the corner. And literally, I couldn't believe what I was doing, but I was in the corner, and I was actually cussing at God. I was telling God it was too hard to be a Christian. He required too much of me. And I was sick of him. 
And it was strange because as I was down there saying all those things, not exactly those kind words that I just gave to you, but I was saying it much more explicitly, a small voice came to me. Andre, go talk to your father. It's like, I don't want to talk to my dad. And it came again. It's a real small voice, a real quiet. Andre, go talk to your father. So I got up, went upstairs, got to the top floor. I could go right and talk to my sister some more, let her know, you know, some things. Or I could go left and go talk to my dad. I went left. I walk into the office, and my dad's always working. And he's typing on the computer. He says, Andre, what do you need, buddy? And I said, uh, Dad, I need to talk to you. He's like, okay, go ahead, talk. And he's still typing. I said, no, Dad, I'm serious, man. I need to talk to you. So he turns around the chair. And I had every intention to have a regular conversation. But what came out? I hate God. I hate him. That's what came out of my mouth. I hate him. And my dad is known to be short-fused. But in that instance, he didn't do anything but put his arms around me. Listen to me. My dad didn't do anything but put his arms around me. And I cried in his arms. I just cried. And I remember as he's holding me in his arms and I'm saying I hate God and he's holding me, I can just see the impress of the Spirit of God say, but I love you. You see, the children of Israel did not understand how much God loved them. How, how much a part of him that they were to him. And it breaks God's heart. In fact, when we go further in the study, I don't have time to do it now, but when you go further in the study, it shows that in Ezekiel chapter 11, God literally has to leave the house and go sit on the east mountain in order to let them feel the results of their own decision. God is that loving that he says, okay, you don't want me? I'm going to step back so you can feel what, what this choice you're making. So you can feel it. God doesn't want to leave us that way. You understand that? God wants to be so tight, so close, that there's nothing that will separate us from him. You want unity? It's not by me talking to you and arguing with you and fighting with you and democracy and management and diplomacy. No. I must find the man Jesus. And when I find the man Jesus, I promise you there's nothing sweeter there's nothing more peaceful, there's nothing more awesome than to be in the presence of the one that loves greater than you can ever understand what love was. I want to leave with this thought. I want to read it to you. I'm going to come out of this. And it came to me, so I'm just going to share it with you. It's from the book, Christ's Object Lessons, 159, paragraph number one. So I want to read it, because if you don't see it, it won't make sense. 
Notice what it says here. It says, no outward observance can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of self. But no man can empty himself of self. How many men can empty themselves of self? How many? We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchrist-like self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich currents of thy love may flow through my soul. One last one. Father in heaven, as I read this last quotation, Lord, I ask that you impress the realities of this on each one of our hearts. For self-worship above all else, Lord, is the worst sin of all. Please give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It says, no man can of himself understand his errors. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The lips, now listen. The lips may express a poverty of soul that the heart does not acknowledge. While speaking to God of poverty of spirit, the heart may be swelling with the conceit of its own superior humility and exalted righteousness. Did it say while speaking to the church members? What did it say? While speaking to who, my friends? While speaking to God, you mean you could be on your knees talking to God, Lord, I'm so horrible, I'm such a bad person, and your heart's like, no, you're not, you're a good guy. You're not so bad. You're not like that drug dealer or that homosexual. The heart, proud, arrogant. It goes on to say, while speaking to God of poverty, the spirit of the heart may be swelling with the conceit of its own superior humility and exalted, right, exalted righteousness. Now watch this. In one way only. What does only mean, my friend? What does only mean? There's no other way. Only means only. In one way only can a true knowledge of self be obtained. We must behold Christ. It is ignorance of him that makes men so uplifted in their own righteousness. When we contemplate his purity and excellence. We shall see our own weakness and poverty and defects as they really are. We shall see ourselves lost and hopeless, clad in garments of self-righteousness like every other sinner. We shall see that if we are ever saved, it will not be through our own goodness, but through God's infinite grace. I want to ask you a question, my friends.
When you see the man Jesus, you take that man Jesus and look at yourself. The man Jesus, God of the universe, speaks things into existence, can walk on water, kind to children, loving to those who are unlovable, gentle, sweet, kind, loving. Now look at yourself. Look at yourself. This week when you yelled at your children, this week when you're arguing amongst yourselves, look at the man Jesus and look at yourself. Look at yourself. Look at your life. Look at what you've done with it. Someone says, I've done a good job. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. Jesus wants to take us, reshape us, clean us up from the inside out. He's not trying to do it from the outside in. That's not what he's trying to do. He's trying to do it from the inside out, where in reality, you can actually love to study the Bible. Fathom that. Where in reality, he could give it, he puts it inside of you, and you could actually love to witness. Where he puts it inside of you, where you don't want the things of this world, the basketball of this world, the hip-hop of this world, the movies of this world. He can put it inside. You're not going to work it in. He's going to work it out. My question is, do you want it for real? You see, the question is, do you want it for real? Or do you want the superficial religious activities that make it look like you're an Adventist when you're really not an Adventist and you hate every moment of being an Adventist? Or are you going to let God write his law in your heart? Are you going to make it easy for him? Are you going to make it easy for him? Just let him come in and let him change you. Let his presence come and change you. Let him change you. Man, there's things that you fight with you don't even have to fight with. There's things you're wrestling with you ain't got to wrestle with. The God of the universe speaks things into existence and you're down here fighting. No, stop fighting. Rest in him. Give him everything. Don't be like the children of Israel having a form of godliness with no power. Substituting power for religious activity. Stop doing that. Be united with the God of the universe. And he will make you everything that you want to be. How many understood what we studied tonight? Let me see your hand. You understand? How many tonight? How many tonight? are going to stop playing Christianity and let God make you a Christian? How many tonight are going to do that? Let me see your hand. Let me tell you something. If you let God do that for you, we can get off this planet. Listen, that's why I was born. The only reason why I'm born is to help us get off this planet. That's why you're born. 
We can end this thing. No more child molestation. No more wars. None of that. If God's people would just turn back to him, Father, come get us. He'd come. Just right now, we don't say, Father, come get us. We're like, don't come right now. I got to get a degree. I got to get married. I haven't had sex yet. It's true. But if we say, Father, come get us, no more separation, nothing between. If that's your prayer, let's go to our knees together. Father in heaven, we've gone to our knees, Lord, because there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go, Father. There's no other place for help. There's no other place of strength. There's no other focus. But on our knees before your throne right now, we throw ourselves before you, Father, because we need help. We are tired of playing games, Lord. We're tired of being halfway in and halfway out. Lord, we want it all. And even as our words say it now, Lord, our hearts are in rebellion against the reality. So, Father, we pray as we've been instructed, Lord, take our hearts for we cannot give them. They are your property. Lord, keep them for we cannot keep them for thee. Please raise us into a pure and holy atmosphere that the rich currents of your love may flow through our souls. Father, forgive us, for, forgive us for loving ourselves more than loving you. Father, forgive us for loving our own ambition, our own gain, our own whatever it is, Father, over loving you. And because we have done this, the world has suffered greatly because they have no knowledge of the true God or his plan to save us, Father. Forgive us. Please. Please forgive us, Lord. Please forgive us, Father. We have wasted so much time. We've wasted such good portions of our lives on ourselves. Father, please take our lives and let them be wholly consecrated to Thee. Help us to redeem the time, Lord. Please make us Christians from the inside out, we pray. We love you, Lord, but we ask that you teach us to love you more than anything else in this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.